Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the School of Travel's podcast. Before we go any further with today's interview, I just want to express my sincere condolences to the people of the Ukraine and everything they're currently going through as they battle against the Russian forces. I myself never had the chance to visit the beautiful country of Ukraine before this current invasion, but I just want to say that my heart goes out to everyone there struggling for freedom and trying to get out of this desperate situation. We are going to put links to places where you can donate to help support the people of Ukraine in this week's show notes, so be sure to check those out. Now, this week, I actually wanted to touch on the topic of residency again, and this was something I had planned before Russia invaded Ukraine. But as we are seeing in the events of these past 10 days, um, it's really important, I think, in this day and age to get residency in more than one country because you never know what could happen. As the listeners of this podcast know, I actually got my residency in Portugal last year, and I actually also still hold permanent residency in Japan. And when I first started traveling, I did not set out to collect residencies, so to speak, but I just started to realize that it was really a great feeling to know that I had these families and these long-term friendships in different countries. And so that's just what has happened over my many years of travel. But as I think about it in this day and age, I think it's even more important to start building relationships in different places. And so the person I'm going to interview today, Chris DeLeon, He actually never planned uh, initially to get residency in Mexico, but throughout his journey through living in many different countries, as you're going to hear, he ended up doing just that, and he actually just renewed his Mexican residency a couple of weeks ago for three more years. So I want to speak with him today. Um, Back in episode 62, I shared my story of getting residency in Portugal, if you want to check that out. But this week, we're going to talk about getting residency in Mexico. So Chris de Leon, he has quite a story to share with us as he started dreaming of travel very early on growing up on the tiny island of Guam, with his efforts to follow his dreams ultimately taking him around the world. He not only became fluent in Japanese and he worked in the Japanese corporate life, but he also landed an international transfer to London, which allowed him to travel to new places almost every weekend. Almost every weekend. Chris now considers himself a hybrid nomad, and you will need to follow along with his story to find out just what he means by that and if this might be a future option for you. Actually, I myself also consider myself a hybrid nomad now, so please follow along so you can understand what we mean. Finally, Chris and I are going to discuss why he ultimately fell in love with Mexico City and how he ended up getting his residency there, and how you can too. 
So let's dive into Chris's story now. Welcome to episode 71 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I am joined by a fellow nomad cruiser, Chris DeLeon. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Becky. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. And I am really glad to talk with you today about something that has become a really urgent and like ever-changing issue, especially with nomads, Mexico and the possibility of Mexican residency. So I'm so glad that you're going to be able to chat with us about that today. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to share the information after going through the process of getting Mexican residency. Yeah, I'm really glad to learn about too. Maybe it's even something I might look into in the future. You just never know these days. Yeah, you never know because everything's changing, especially during these COVID times. Right. But first of all, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And I want to talk with you about your travel background first. Uh, Yeah, so a little bit about myself. I've always been considered a very international global citizen. Uh, My family is from the Philippines, but uh, I was born and raised in Guam, which is a U.S. territory. I lived there for 18 years. And then after that, I went to school in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, But during that time, I also spent one year in Japan, in Kyoto specifically, as an exchange student. And then when I finished uh, university, I went uh, and lived in Japan for five Actually, a total, no, one year in Kyoto and then five years in Tokyo. Uh, so I was there a total of six years in Japan. And then I decided I wanted change. I didn't want to go back to the U.S. Uh, so with my company, I got a transfer to their uh, headquarters in London. So I lived there for three years, um, enjoyed my time. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the end of my time in London was during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. So I lost my job. I couldn't get another visa to stay in the UK. So I ended up going back to the US. Um, Then I ended up living in the mainland US for um, several years. Um, I lived a few years in Las Vegas, which I believe you're there now, right, Becky, in Las Vegas? That's right. I'm already smiling over here because there's so many overlaps of our lifestyles and our travel history. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I know it was interesting. And then I went up to Seattle and then I had a full-time job uh, working as a marketing, marketing professional for an organic food company and had that for a couple of years. And then I left that position, the company downsized. So I ended up getting laid off. But at that time, this was in 2015. And I already had a side hustle where I was doing digital marketing consulting Uh, for small businesses. So when I got laid off from my job, I decided to go full time into doing marketing consulting. And that's when I started my digital nomad journey. Because in 2010, I remembered reading the four hour work week. And one of the first chapters was Tim Ferriss talking about doing tango dancing and spending a couple of months in Argentina, um, working remotely. And I said, Hey, I wanted to do that. And then fast forward to 2016, I ended up um, living in Buenos Aires for three months. That was my first uh, stint as a digital nomad. Um, oh my god! Enjoyed it. So many overlaps, Chris. <laughs> yes. I know because I know you were just in Buenos Aires as well. Yeah, <laughs> I was just there for two months, and it was it was another one of my early travel adventures. Also, I think mm-hmm. sparked a bit by Tim Ferriss, but just yeah, the, the idea of tango. So I'm so glad you had that experience. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, so I spend a good amount of time. I usually consider myself a part-time digital nomad because um, I would spend half the year in Seattle, which has been my home base in the U.S. Um, 
when it's nice and warm. And then I would spend my winters somewhere warm, mainly in Latin America. Um, I've spent time in Argentina, Colombia, Panama, um, and Mexico. Um, and then let's fast forward to 2020. I was supposed to be in Playa del Carmen, Mexico for one month. Then the pandemic happened. And then everyone thought I was crazy for deciding to stay in Mexico. Um, cause at that time I didn't want to go back to the U S and my one month trip turned into 18 months. Um, <laughs> and during that time I ended up getting Mexican residency. And then as of this recording, it is now February 22, 2022. Special and day. And I am now special a special day. <laughs> <laughs> and now I am living full-time in Mexico City um, as a Mexican resident. Okay, Chris. Wow. Um, I'm sure our listeners are thinking the same. Okay, so we are going to talk about Mexican residency, but just want to ask you, like, of all those places that you lived, and I, I think it's interesting because you were definitely living expat life in Tokyo, but you were, it sounds like you were what now people are calling like a hybrid nomad when you were living in Seattle, like doing like half the year of travel, half the year in Seattle. You were in Buenos Aires, but you weren't just there on a like one week trip, you were there for three months. Can you give me like a, a summary of, of what it was like living in Tokyo versus London versus Seattle? Like what were some of your favorite places to live and, and favorite experiences, would you say? And then we'll get to Mexico City. Of course. So, yeah, I definitely lived the expat life because when I was living in Tokyo, I had a full time job. Um, at that time, um, this was back in 2001 to 2006. So this whole digital nomad work remotely online didn't exist back then. Um, but, um, but I got my first job in Tokyo at a market research firm. And it was a connection I had through my university network. So they did everything like sponsoring my work visa. Uh, so I had the right to work there and live in Tokyo at the time. Um, and then I left that job after two years and went into something completely different into um, executive recruiting for an international company that was recruiting um, bilingual Japanese, um, bilingual Japanese and English speakers to work for foreign companies in Japan. So it was a pretty good experience because I lived the normal, you know, I did my normal nine to five um, at my work and then just hung out with friends on the weekend. But it was cool because um, I had a mixture of both local Japanese friends and also expats that were living there in Tokyo at the time. So yeah, I had a really good experience over there. I would tell people just to just jump in. I would say that like a lot of people do ask me about Japan. I'm sure they may ask you as well, because to be an expat there is not that common of a thing. But I yeah. think that if I were giving advice to people, I would still tell them now, like try to go for one year and get sponsored or get a work visa for a year if you can, because it was so different looking back now, having that chance to like see all the seasons of Japan, because I, I didn't have a choice. It wasn't like I was only coming in as a nomad for three months. My experience there was like so much deeper because it's like I had to be there. I had to see all of these changing of the, you know, of the seasons and the the festivals and all the different things. So would you, would you give the same advice or how do you feel about that? Oh yeah, definitely. I would uh, give some advice to, yeah, see if you can spend a year, get a work sponsorship. Um, you know, you may find it through your university or college connections, or you may do some networking um, on LinkedIn, um, you know, join Facebook at Facebook expat groups, and then see if you can identify some opportunities there. Because yeah, definitely living in Japan is a unique experience. It's completely different from living in the Western world. 
Um, and yeah, I wouldn't trade it for a bit. My experience was amazing over there. Definitely a lot of challenges, especially in the beginning, working in um, in a very Japanese business environment. So I had to also work on my Japanese language skills in order to function there, in addition to the normal stresses of uh, daily work life. Yeah, I think the language is definitely a challenge if you go not having studied it before. But I mean, if people were asking, I would also say like there's a lot of opportunities to teach English for a year if you're a native English right. speaker. If you're if you're looking to just go in for a year, but like you said, there could always be a connection through someone. And usually, if if you're going in with a company, they can find a way to get you a visa because you are bringing like special outside skills. Um, it can be great or it can be even more of a challenge if you decide to stay longer. But people ask me, why did you stay so many years in Japan? Like you were there over five years. I think because it does take a while to get used to things and, you know, just to experience things once there, you feel like, no, no, I need to stay and and see even more and go even more places in Japan. And I think, yeah, it'll depend on everybody's individual experience. But that's what I found. I don't know if you found that to be the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely found that to be to be the same as well. You know, it, getting having the chance to obviously work in an international environment because you're working with people from different cultures, um, and then exploring what the country has to offer either on weekends or taking a vacation from work. So there's definitely a lot of things to do. Yeah, are you planning a trip back to Japan when they finally open again? I would love to go back. I haven't been back to Japan in. Since 2018, um, and then before that, I left Japan in 2006. So that's quite a long gap. And I definitely wow. want to spend more time in Japan. Yeah, so it's a long time. Um, I definitely want to relearn Japanese because my Japanese is so rusty right now, <laughs> and especially <laughs> after spending a long time learning the language and then forgetting it. <laughs> so yeah, I would definitely love to spend more time in Japan once it reopens. That's great. I'll see you there, Chris. Let, let's meet up when we're there. We can go to <laughs> Shimokitazawa, one of my favorite places that I actually wrote a book about yes. that you knew. You're like, I've been there. I'm like, oh, Chris, we have so much. Yeah, I lived there in Shimokitazawa. I lived there for two years. Oh, my God. I, what, what years did you live there? 2001 to 2003. No, Chris. Long, long I started, time ago. That, I that's almost 20 years there. ago. My first job there started in 2004. I just missed you. <laughs> I know we missed each other, but I was still in Tokyo when we were there. So we were in Tokyo at the same time. I'm sure we, we crossed paths because there's so many like, <laughs> we the same places. It, there's so many expat places like Shibuya, the places that, you know, you find yourself going back to again and again. That's my theory is that we must have crossed paths at one of those we points. We must have crossed paths. We may have met in passing <laughs> as <laughs> well, we, especially if we were surrounded by expats. We were destined of all places to meet on a cruise. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and here so, we are. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about London for a little bit. Another city that has changed dramatically in the pandemic. How was living in London for you for those, you said three years, right? Yeah, it was different um, back then because I was in London from 2006 to 2009. And again, I was working for a British company, but it was an international environment. And then I connected with uh, friends that were from different countries. And the good thing about living in London was that it's a big city. There's so much to do, like a lot of culture, a lot of entertainment, um, you know, the restaurants, the nightlife. And the good thing about London is it's close proximity to continental Europe. 
So, you know, I can work Monday to Friday and then Friday, Friday afternoon, I could just hop on a train and go down to Paris for the weekend because it's only two hours away. Uh, so I kind of miss that living in London, just being able to, to travel to so many different places, different cultures, different languages that are within a two to three hour flight from London. Yeah, that was one thing that I think I would say many of us living in Japan for years at a time started to miss. I, I said, wow, wouldn't it be great to be able to go to so many places in under two hours? Whereas there living, you, the first country you reach is an hour and a half by flight. And that was South Korea. So yeah, mm-hmm. I found myself like getting some FOMO after a while. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Cause when I was living in Tokyo, I remember going down to Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam. Um, it's still, you know, a bit of a flight. I think it's like five or six hours, but still um, you're in a completely different country, having a completely different experience from Japan. Right. Yeah. That was great too, having Southeast Asia at your back door, but still a minimum of a five hour flight. So London just doesn't compare with how close everything (laughs) is. And um, I would would say, interestingly enough, that like if people were were asking me, what are your five favorite cities of the world? Tokyo is one of them. London is one of them. And then Buenos Aires is another one. So let's talk a little bit about that before we jump over to Seattle. What were those three months in Buenos Aires like for you? And what year were you there? Uh, So I was there in 2016. That's almost six years ago. (laughs) Where has the time gone? Oh my goodness. Yeah. um, I would say it was very hard in the beginning because I spoke absolutely no word of Spanish when I got there to Buenos Aires. And at that time, um, I didn't meet a lot of English speakers in the beginning. So I would say that was probably one of the most challenging parts of being being a digital or nomad or expat in a foreign country where they don't speak English. Um, so that was a really um, challenging experience <laughs> for me, for sure. And, when is and I, then after that time in Buenos Aires, yeah, yeah go ahead. They do speak such a particular type of Spanish, which I don't think a lot of people realize when they just hear, you know, Argentina or Buenos Aires. Yeah, they have a completely different accent over there. So, so after that trip, I just you know made the decision I'm going to learn the language. <laughs> so that's when I started uh, studying Spanish after that trip. What, what keeps you going with like, how, how do you find the courage to like jump into these cities and live for months at a time when you start not knowing the language? Because I, I'm, I know that going to Tokyo at first was a challenge as well. Yeah. I mean, I like to joke around and say, you know, I'm an Aries, <laughs> so we're very <laughs> impulsive and we just jump right, jump into things right away and then figure things along the way. Um, but I knew that I wanted a different experience because I loved living abroad. And I think having the experience of living in different countries um, played a huge role in adjusting to living in another foreign country. I would say so, too. And I think and it's then, great you kept trying. You know, you kept it, you kept pushing yourself even as you were getting older. You didn't just settle down, you know. Not not at all. And I know your audience um, loves traveling, obviously. So it's in them too. <laughs> they have that itch to to go somewhere new, try new experiences, meet new people. Um, so yeah, I would say it's, you know, because I have that experience traveling, um, that it helped a lot in adjusting to to life in Buenos Aires. 
Yeah, I would imagine. When you were in Buenos Aires, what was the exchange rate with the Argentine peso like? Did you go to the black market and change US dollars? Because I know that's that can be a really big thing some years in their in economy. Other times, it's not an issue. Yeah, back then in 2016, it wasn't an issue. So I withdrew from US, my US bank account. And then I used Charles Schwab whenever I travel. Um, because I know with Charles Schwab, they don't have any ATM fees to use another non-Charles Schwab um, ATM. And then they actually reimburse any ATM fees you're charged from another bank. So I would usually tra- uh, transfer money from Wells Fargo, which is my main bank account, to Charles Schwab. And then when I travel internationally, I would draw using my Charles Schwab debit card. So I never had to go to the black market Um in, in Buenos Aires. And then whenever I withdrew cash, it was pretty close to the market rate at the time. Yeah, I found that to be the same when I was there in 2018 and 2019, which is the closest that I can of my experience to 2016 when you were there. But I can tell you that in 2021 um, and 2022, where I, when I was just there, like it's it's so different now between the US dollar and the Argentine peso, things have gotten harder that it's, I was often going to the black market because it was about 50% cheaper um, for the, for the exchange of the dollar. I was, yeah, essentially if I'd gone to the ATM, I would have lost 50% of savings. So that was, that was interesting. Oh, I see. Definitely different. And I heard it's, and I heard it's crazy now because I am seeing some um, friends of mine posting on Instagram and Facebook about their bags of like cash or bills that they have to um, you know, log around, you know, the city just to pay for stuff because of the inflation there. Um, so I thought that was really crazy <laughs> looking at those photos. Yeah, the largest bill right now is the equivalent of $5. So you can imagine if they give you like the the bill that's worth like 50 cents or a dollar that you're like, <laughs> you need to bring a backpack yeah. to exchange money at like a Western, yeah. Union, which a lot of people are doing, which is so bizarre. And it's, it's just, it's really different if you're if you've never been to a place like that so i love the city myself i love the parks i love the the food and a lot of this culture that they've kept they haven't brought in so many outside influences um but i Mm -hmm. think i think that yeah it's it's definitely can be challenging in in a number of different ways when you visit argentina Mm -hmm. yeah definitely so yeah i would love to go back and visit it's been over you know six years uh, since I last uh, visited Buenos Aires. I've not lost my love for for that city. Every time I go back, I find something new to love. And so it's definitely still in my top five. Um, and yeah, but now let's talk about Seattle. Well, that's again, a very different place to live in a really different natural setting. How was that for you? Yeah, it was definitely uh, quite an interesting experience. I went up to Seattle because I have family that lives up there. So I wanted to reconnect with them. And then I also found a job opportunity in Seattle as well. So it worked out. Um, Very interesting because I found Seattle one of the most difficult places to meet new people. Um, I don't know if it's the weather because Seattle's pretty gloomy for nine months out of the year. And then in the summertime, the city just comes um, comes to life because you have that short period from the 4th of July to Labor Day where it's pretty much sunny almost every day. So it's like a completely different uh, experience because everybody's so happy. There's a lot of festivals going on. Um, everyone's eating outdoors. It's just such a, a, a lively city during the summertime. Um, so I love that. 
Um, but during the winter, it was tough because I did realize I get winter depression. So if I don't see the sun at all, especially for a number of days, I feel, you know, sad and depressed. And I remember at times I have to use the, the blue light or use blue light therapy. So I have to stick this device that emits blue light in order to, you know, lighten up my mood. And then that's when I decided, okay, when I do the, um, become a digital nomad, I need to get away um, to someplace sunny during the winter time and then come back to Seattle um, when it's sunny. <laughs> so that's why I decided, hey, I'm going to live this, you know, hybrid, hybrid nomad life, as uh, you mentioned earlier in the podcast. I am the same, Chris, actually, I didn't realize this for a long time. But like, they call Japan the land of the rising sun for a reason. The sun was coming up, as you know, at like 4.30 in the morning. But when you work in office, as we did, I was only seeing the sun for about 10 minutes on the way to the train station. And then the sun sets by like 7.30 all throughout the year. You're never going to have it up longer than that. And so I was coming out of the office sometimes after that and not really seeing the sun. And I And my mom actually gave me one of those light therapy devices for my birthday once. And she kind of knew she's like, um, you need more sun. And she probably also saw my very white skin, but it's, it's a thing. And I think that mm-hmm. a lot of people either have realized this about themselves or just maybe it's the cold itself. Like I know a lot of Canadians now are moving down to Mexico, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, but it's, it's great that you realize that about yourself and that you could do things to mitigate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, it worked out. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of like trying to create this lifestyle where I have an eternal summer. <laughs> oh, what a dream. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you find yourself missing the cold weather? And when I say cold, like, I mean, even, you know, fall, let's say fall like temperatures, because I was trying the eternal summer, knowing that I needed l- the light, but then I, st- I found myself starting to miss putting on a jacket, actually. How about you? Um, I do sometimes. I mean, Mexico City is a bit chilly because we're at a higher elevation. So I still need to wear a jacket early in the morning and in the evenings. Uh, but right now it's nice. I think it's about 75 degrees outside. So I didn't have to wear a jacket when I went out for lunch um, right before this interview. That's really but nice. But yeah, I do sometimes miss, I sometimes miss the fall colors, you know, when the leaves are changing and you have the beautiful red and the orange. Um, that's what I miss. Um, and then also springtime in Seattle. Seattle's beautiful in the spring as well because all the flowers start blooming. Um, yeah. so it's pr- it's pretty. The cherry blossoms in Japan, Chris. I I oh the cherry know. blossoms. <laughs> I remember that. It was nice to and know. What is it? The honey a premium because uh, you're not like three hundred dollars a night for a hotel. Let's do it. Like it was like oh well, I'll just walk outside from my apartment and enjoy it. And, uh, that's something I'll yeah, always do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For sure. And I remember the, the Hanami parties, you know, that we would be drinking under the cherry blossoms, which is such a, which is a big tradition in Japan, for sure. Oh, yeah. I didn't know about them when I first moved to Japan. And people, I, I'll explain that Hanami means like viewing the cherry blossoms. It's, it's, that's kind of what the, the, the tradition is about. And it's, again, like you were saying with Seattle, people have been stuck inside or they're in a rainy season and then that ends and everybody comes outside. And it's like that first, um, that first tradition of doing so. And also strangely, um, in Japan, and you can add to this because you were actually working for a Japanese company, like you had to go out as like the, the first hires of the year were around April 1st. 
And so the first, these like new hires to a company had to go out to like a park and like stake a claim with the picnic blanket for the whole company. Did you ever actually go through that tradition? No, I don't think I actually went through that tradition through my company, but I don't know, like I would just go with my Japanese friends and they just know what to do. <laughs> they just say, hey, meet at this time. <laughs> and they have everything all sorted. <laughs> so, Since I, always so I never had a problem like- with that, luckily. Yeah, I always worked for like the hybrid companies that were either uh, like non-Japanese owned or like they were Japanese owned, but there were a lot of foreigners working there. But I would always see these like young people in suits, like sitting alone on a picnic, on a huge picnic blanket. And I knew they were there waiting for the rest of the company and the boss to show up. And it was such, such an interesting spring tradition in Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I miss that. It's been over... 15 years since I've last done a Hanami, one of those parties under the cherry blossom trees. I got to experience it in 2020, uh, 2020 because I, w- I stayed on in the pandemic there. But of course, it wasn't what it was supposed to be because of the pandemic. So I was walking around. Then it was also freakishly cold. It was snowing on Hanami, uh, which was cool. <laughs> but also not what you were expecting. So I need to go back, but it was magical. I think I had gone four years without seeing the cherry blossoms. And I was like, wow, I missed this. And I, I want everybody when those borders open again, I'm so excited for people to go back and get to experience that. So if you're listening to this podcast now, make that a future bucket list event when, and, but wait for it to be able to do it right. <laughs> once everything's open again. Mm-hmm, exactly. So Cool. Well, let's now talk about Mexico City because that is n- one of the other top five cities I have. I'm still thinking what my fifth one would be. I don't know. What <laughs> but what do you love about Mexico City? What is it like to live there? Um, I miss living in big cities. And I didn't realize that until my first visit in to Mexico City back in October of 2020. Because I spent... Um, almost 10 years living between Tokyo and London. And I missed the big city vibe. Um, I missed the hustle and bustle. Um, I feel I'm more productive here. Um, Cause I, at, for me, my priority has been growing my business. So I feel like being in the big city is conducive to that. And there's, there's also great networking opportunities to connect with other professionals and business owners um, here in Mexico city. The food is amazing. One of my top five cities for food, oh, <laughs> for, for sure. sure. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's just so much events going on. There's, you know, there's art museums. Um, there, There's just, um, you know, history here, colonial architecture. Uh, what, what else? The vibe. Uh, there's also a lot of expats here. So there's a lot of expat groups you can pretty much find a group based on whatever interest you have. Like, for example, if you're into salsa dancing, there's a huge salsa and bachata community over here. There's always a dance band going on every single night of the week. Um, there's language exchanges. So there's, um, uh, I, I go to a couple of them where it's Spanish and English, but there's also one um, on Wednesday night, which is an Asian language night. And they have people that speak Chinese, Korean, and Japanese. So that's where... I'm trying to get back my Japanese. And then whenever I try to speak Japanese, I realize how rusty it is. And then I just, my brain just reverts back to Spanish. If I don't know if I forgot the word in Japanese. <laughs> so that's another interesting thing as well. Um, there's expat dinner nights, there's crypto events, there's entrepreneur events. 
Uh, so yeah, whatever you want, whatever you're interested in, you can find it. I know there's a chat group here for like, weekend excursions out of uh, Mexico City uh, or date or other types of day trips. Uh, so yeah, that's what I love about being in a big city. I miss the vibe. I miss uh, the culture. I miss the the hustle and bustle as well. Like I, I just consider I love I love big cities, as you can tell. <laughs> Me too. I think we we have that in common for sure. Um, so having, having been to Mexico city, I've been there now three times and I can really say that it's a it's a city of neighborhoods. The neighborhoods look quite different from one another, in my opinion. Um, can you tell me about some of your favorite neighborhoods in Mexico city? Yeah, so definitely the, the neighborhoods I usually hang out with is, uh, Condesa and Roma Norte. Those are the two most popular neighborhoods. Um, that are popular among expats. Condesa, I would say it's a little bit more like an upscale um, neighborhood versus Roma Norte, which is more hipster. Um, but what I love about both neighborhoods is it's full of restaurants, cafes, uh, co-working spaces. There's a lot of trees, a lot of parks. Uh, you see people walking their dogs, you know, all over the neighborhood. Um, you have a lot of beautiful street art. You have, you know, a lot of food options ranging from taco, taco trucks, all the way to gourmet fine dining. So those are two popular neighborhoods. I live in a neighborhood, Chapultepec, which is near the largest park in Mexico City. Um, it also has the Anthropological Museum, also the castle, uh, which are popular tourist spots. Um, Chapultepec is just right on the border uh, with Condesa. So I'm about a 10-minute walk from the heart of Condesa. And then other popular places are Juarez. Um, I would say Polanco is a bit more upscale. Uh, it's probably like the equivalent of Beverly Hills uh, in Mexico City. Um, there is an Apple yeah, but there's just so many. Which I will say, there is an Apple store that you travel to don't have Apple store. I'm like it's easy to access. That. It, it is. It's so fancy there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so yeah, other neighborhoods. There's. Coyoacan. I've only been there once, but that is where Frida Kahlo lived. And there is a museum there that, um, or a house where she used to live. So I've never been there myself. So it's still on my list of places to visit. Um, oh, but yeah, Mexico, I mean. Fascinating, Chris. I really recommend it to you. I, that's one of my favorite neighborhoods. Oh, okay. Yeah, Coyoacan, especially yeah. during October. Oh, cool. There's a lot of people that are oh, wow. in that okay. neighborhood dressing up and often like putting out baskets so you can like donate to their costume. I don't know. Like, look what I did, this effort I put in. You can pay me now. I thought that was funny when I first went, oh. but yeah, oh, you'll goodness. love that. Oh, I have to check it out. It's, it's more traditional, like a lot of beautiful buildings, but also that you can almost feel like Frida had this influence or why she was inspired to live there. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, yeah, and there's just so many more neighborhoods. I mean, um, the greater metropolitan area, I believe, has 20, over 21, 20 million people, and it's the largest metropolitan area in North America. So massive cities, so many different other places to explore. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about the trees because like really in Condesa and Roma Norte, like I feel like I'm under this canopy of trees. There are so many trees just like built over the streets. And it's it's really beautiful and very different from what I first thought Mexico City would look like. I thought it was this hugely overpopulated place that had to have so much traffic and it would be so polluted and dangerous. But I was just so surprised when I got there at how beautiful it really is for being a capital city. 
Yeah, me too. I was not expecting much of Mexico City the first time I came here. And the only reason why I came to visit the first time was because a good friend of mine from Seattle was going to be in Mexico City for a week. So I just thought, oh, I come out and see my friend. And then I instantly fell in love with the city. It's like, oh my God, this is not what I was expecting. Completely different because no one really talks about Mexico City. I think it's one of the most underrated cities on the planet. Um, but I think more people are starting to discover it because I noticed you know, there are a lot more foreigners now in Mexico City compared to even last summer. So I think the secret's getting out. I totally agree. It's it's very it's still very underrated. And if you are a fan of big cities where, where you have a, countless things to do, it's it's going to deliver for you with some of the best food in the world. Mm-hmm, exactly, and the lifestyle, like I would say, it's like New York for maybe a third or fourth of the price. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And it has a big transportation network. It's, it's, you know, there, it's easy to get around, but there's also so many day trips you can take from the city. Have you been to Xochimilco yet? Yes. I love it. The canals and the boats and it's so popular for the locals. Like if you want to have a fun weekend with a group of friends, they would rent out a boat, go through the canals, drink and party. So it's a very festive area. Yeah, like you can rent one of those boats and just go through the canals drinking and playing music. And like, I haven't been on a party boat yet, but I did like an Airbnb experience along the canals on a much quieter day. And I just, I just loved it. Okay. Yeah. I went on a Saturday afternoon, so all the party boats were out. Okay. (laughs) That's when I should go. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The party boats and the mariachi bands playing. (laughs) (laughs) Also like the temple of the sun and the moon and Teotihuacan, like the, you know, ancient capital right outside Mexico city. Have you been there as well? No, I haven't done that, but it's on my bucket list to do a hot air hot air balloon trip uh, during the sunrise because I've seen so many beautiful oh photos gosh. of that. I did not even know that uh, was an it's on my bucket list. <laughs> yeah, there is a go on the hot air balloon over sunrise and it's beautiful. And I definitely want to check that out for sure. Well, another thing I found about Mexico City was like just the ancient spiritual traditions, both like with plants and plant medicine, but also just it, it's in it's kind of infused in everything. Um, in the culture. And, and that's, that's really different to anything, any other city I think I've lived in on that scale. Right. It's just this other facet that I appreciate whenever I go there. So you've settled there in Mexico City. So now let's talk about what a lot of people I'm sure are really curious about, which is getting residency in Mexico. How did you start? And can you explain your process? Yeah, there's so many different ways to go about it. Um, So you can either get it through family connections or through work or financial or economic solvency, which is the route that I went. So that's the route that I can speak of since I've gone through the process. Um, So to give you a little bit of a backstory. So when I came initially in 2020, um, when I entered, I got um, 180 days um, to stay here. And then because of that pandemic, Um, They were giving out visa extensions in the summer of uh, 2020. So when my 180 days um, expired, I was able to get another 180 day extension uh, due to COVID. Um, And then that took me into February of 2021. Um, And at that time, they were no longer doing visa extensions. So I had to do a visa run because I did want to stay in Mexico longer Um, But then I spoke to a couple of immigration experts and 
I also did my own research. And because I'm already generating my own income, I would be able to qualify through the economic solvency category. Um, so what I did was I, um, to start the process, you, to start the process, you have to do it outside of Mexico. Um, so being a U.S. citizen, I was able to do it at one of the Mexican consulates in the U.S. I ended up going to Miami. Uh, so what I did was, so this was back in February 2021, I emailed uh, the consulate, the, the Mexican consulate in Miami um, that I wanted to book an appointment to apply for my visa. And then they replied back and told me all of the financial requirements. And basically, you have three options. You can qualify out of one, one out of three ways. Um, the first one would be based on your savings over the last uh, 12 months and each continent has different requirements but I believe that requirement at the time was you know showing a balance of at least 25,000 every month over the last 12 months uh, the second option was oh, qualified can I just stop you there did monthly you, income can I just Sorry, stop you there did, did you say 25,000 yep. you had to hold 25,000 US dollars in your bank account like over the last 12 months or it, do you mean 25,000 $25,000. So that's based okay. on the savings route. Okay. So it has that's to, you, you had one. to, you needed to maintain a minimum of $25,000 over the last 12 months. I, I believe that was the requirement uh, okay. but around there 25, but they, it keeps going up every year, but that was the first route. Did you, did you already have that in an account from like previously? And you were just like, I'm going to hold that money in that account and show it to them. Or can you like put that much money in, like, let's say from January, and then you just like wait the year to to be able to apply? I, I think you would have to do it because what they what they will ask you if you decide to go this route is your last 12 months of bank statements. Um, okay. So I don't know if it's the average daily balance that they look at or if it's like the ending statement balance. So that's something that you would have to check with the consulate that you're applying for. Because one thing I noticed is that there's not much consistency among the consulates. They have their own, they make up their own rules and their requirements, but they follow kind of a general guideline uh, that comes out of Mexico City. Okay. Okay. Just for planning purposes oh, wait, me, for people yeah, that want to start up from this um, savings route. You know what? I may actually be, I still have my old email. So if you give me just one second, I can pull up what the actual number is. Okay. Ah, sorry. I made a mistake. It's 34,000 US dollars. But keep in mind, this was the requirement in February 2021. So that might have changed uh, depending okay. on what your consulate goes through. So that's okay. the first option you can qualify for. The second okay. option that you can qualify for is um, generating, um, have making at least $2,000 in income each month over six months. Because what they're going to ask for is your pay stubs from your company, um, showing that you are making um, after taxes at least two thousand. But I heard that actually went up this year, and I've heard some consulates. I actually saw somebody post in the expat group today um, that the Orlando consulate required uh, twenty five hundred um, in monthly income, and that's after taxes. Okay, got it. And then the and then the third route was. Um, real estate, I believe owning real estate. And then last year in Miami, they required $274,000 in real estate. I like imagine this real is estate in real Mexico. estate in Mexico. Okay. 
Okay. And that, so one, as you know, I did apply for residency in Portugal um, in 2021. And when I, before I applied and I saw that rule, I thought that maybe I could get just buy a property that had the value of, of, of 275,000, let's say, but get a mortgage from Mexico and that that would all count. But I I realized that no, they actually wanted me to bring $275,000 from outside of Mexico to qualify for that. So I had to change my strategy a little bit once I realized that was the case. Do you know if like you can get a mortgage in Mexico and that can be included as part of the 275 or or do you actually have to bring $275,000 worth outside of Mexico from outside of Mexico? Yeah, that not that I'm not that one I'm not quite sure. So if you're going that route, I would just recommend contacting the consulate and getting more details on what qualifies or perhaps working with an immigration specialist in Mexico that can answer the question, that question. Okay. Um, so yeah, so those are the there. three. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely let- to check out. Cause that wasn't the route that I went through. So I'm not too familiar with the requirements for the real estate route. And it's basically very important to check all of these things meticulously before you start applying, because you want to make sure that you're going to confidently be able to qualify for the route that you want to go. So thank you for checking on your email and like us figuring yeah, out that things a change a lot. <laughs> things are constantly yes, changing. Especially with, yeah, everything's all changing a lot. So what I did is I went the route of income. So when I went to Miami, I had my appointment in Miami. I went in, um, they asked for my pay stubs because I actually own my own company and then I pay myself a monthly salary. So and then I use this, an accounting software that auto generates the pay stubs for me. So I went ahead and then they um, reviewed my pay stubs, making sure that I earned you know, at, at least uh, $2,050 after taxes. Um, and then they asked me two questions. Um, the interview was pretty simple. It was why Mexico? Um, and then how do you plan to support yourself financially? Um, because I'm not allowed to look for work in Mexico uh, with this residency status that I was applying for. Um, and then, yeah, um, the process was quick. I think the whole process was about 30 minutes. I went out for lunch and then I came back and I had the visa stamp in my passport. So that was the first step in applying for my residency. How long was that visa good for that, that was stamped into your passport? So when you get the when you get the stamp from the consulate, you have you have to enter Mexico within 180 days. Um, and then once you get to Mexico, you have 30 days to um, finish the process at a at your local immigration office. Um, so what I did was once I got the stamp, I flew back to Mexico the same day. I'm sorry, the following day. And then I hired an immigration specialist in Playa del Carmen, which was where I was living at that time, to handle all of the paperwork for me. Do you um, mind? So I got in. <laughs> How much did that cost at that so time? That, yeah, so her fee, I believe, was 2,000 pesos. So um, that was a, really about a hundred dollars. Oh no, no, I have to double check it. I, mean, I can't remember if it's two thousand or four thousand. No, sorry, I think it was two thousand five hundred, two thousand or two thousand five hundred. So a little bit over a hundred dollars. You could do it yourself, but I just did not have the time, and I did not want to worry about it because if you feel something wrong in your application form, um, it will actually you could nullify your entire visa and then have to start the process all over again. So I'd rather just pay someone who's an expert. Uh, to handle all the paperwork because I do not want to, you know, make a mistake with that. 
I agree um, with you, Chris, on that. And I think that's a reasonable price to pay. I, w- I would even pay 200, honestly. But when I, when I asked someone in Portugal to do the same thing and they said, we'll handle everything, they quoted me 2,100 US dollars roughly. And I was like, nope, I'll be doing that oh, myself. Wow. But 100, <laughs> that's all right. That's yeah, not, it's, not, not, it's, not, it's not bad at all. Yeah. Um, so she took care of everything, um, for me, the process is by Del Tarman. It took two months from the time I met with my immigration pest specialist till the time I got my residency card. And then that is valid for one year. Okay. From the time you get the card. Correct. Yes. And then there is a government fee to get the card. And I think that was about 4,400 pesos. So it was a little bit over $200. Again, that's all right. That's about, that's not, that's pretty standard, I think. That's pretty standard, yeah. Across. Um, correct, yes. So that just, uh, so having the residency, it allows me in and out privileges in, in, in into Mexico because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm actually glad I got the residency because somehow Mexico is changing um, their, how their system works because before tourists were able to get it automatically or automatically get 180 days but somehow something changed in november and then the immigration officers at the airports aren't giving tourists you know the same 180 days at least like they're flying in through mexico through mexico city or cancun because i've heard horror stories of people getting like seven days or 10 days and they didn't even realize it um and then they end up overstaying their visas and then there was a one instagram video that's been making its rounds around social where he thought he had 180 days. Um, but then I don't know, there was like an immigration checkpoint somewhere in Tulum. Um, and then they caught that they found that he overstayed his visa because he was only given maybe 30 days, but he'd been, he overstayed by another 60, 60 days. So they ended up detaining him. Um, and then I think he was arrested or he stayed in, I don't know if it was jail because I didn't watch the full video. Maybe he was at a detention center or a jail, but he stayed there for like six days. Um, and luckily his, um, embassy was able to get him out. So yeah, yeah, that's been a lot of stories I've been hearing like in Mexico recently about people overstaying or not realizing, you know, how many days they have on their passport or on their, um, on their visa. So now I'm glad that I got the Mexican residency because I don't have to worry about that. Or whenever I come back to Mexico, I don't have to worry about how many days I get because it's just automatic that I can come in until my expiration date. Yeah, I will tell people just to add a little bit to that because I just left Cancun a few days ago. Um, there, If you know how long you're going to stay, I think it's more important now without residency to like have your flight booked out of Mexico. They do want to see that flight that le- you know to show you're leaving Mexico. And then you can kind of calculate how many days you need and just tell them, you know, a minimum of that number of days. Usually they're giving you a few more days than that. Um, also, I've had friends that have been asked to write the number down, like, okay, how many days do you want? And then the, my friend just wrote like 180 and they, they approved it. But I've also oh, had, interesting. yeah, I've also had friends who like said, I need this many days. And maybe there was a miscommunication. The person wrote less days. And then the friend has gone back and said, no, no, I look, I have my Airbnb, Airbnb. I need this many days. And then they have changed it at the immigration point, you know, so they will, they will change that right away for you. So I think it's just more planning. It is a shame that this is happening, but you can often kind of 
negotiate when you're entering the country. And then the way it works is when you leave the country, the paper that you got that has the number of days written on it, you, you hand that to the, the person that is boarding you onto your flight. So you don't go back through immigration at the end. I found that they only checked me when I was boarding the flight. And luckily for me, it was fine. But you know, you don't know when you might be taken to jail. I've, I've actually heard of a friend of a friend also going to jail recently for overstaying on the visa. So it's, it's residency is ever more important, like you said, if you really want to stay longer in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And especially a lot of foreigners now want to come down to Mexico because now they experience, you know, the lifestyle, the lower cost of living and just everything that Mexico has to offer. The food. Um, so yeah, that was uh, <laughs> the food. The food. I can't. Yeah. Food, I can't oh my gosh. And it's also it's a, a great community. It's, amazing, yeah. it's it's a community. It's a way of living that's gotten to be very different from the U.S. in terms of people live a lot in the squares and the plazas. They they live outside a lot more and connect with their neighbors. And I really love that about Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's it's just so friendly here, and I, I feel so happy. Like I've been to so many countries, and I feel like. I'm the happiest whenever I'm in Mexico. Paul, oh, then you're in the right place for sure. I know. So, um, yeah, that was it. Um, I think going back to the visa. So I mentioned it was valid for one year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I recently extended it for another three years because so during the whole process. temporary risk. Yeah. 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 yeah that process was, was, yeah, that process was pretty simple. Like um, I hired somebody here in Mexico City to take care of all the paperwork. The challenge was getting an appointment with the immigration office because they're so backed up. Um, my visa expired. Uh, my previous, sorry, my previous uh, residency card was due to expire February 18th of 2022. Uh, um, I contacted my immigration specialist right before Christmas and he wasn't able to get me an appointment until February 14th. So I got lucky that I was able to get an appointment a few days before my residency card expired. Um, so it was pretty easy. He did all the paperwork. I just showed up at my appointment uh, and gave my paperwork to the immigration officer. Um, she took care of whatever she needed to do in the back end. And then, you know, 90 minutes later, I got my new residency card, uh, which was which is valid for another three years. And okay. then after that, um, I would be... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you, first of all, how much did, did it cost for the second person that you hired for the, the three-year renewal? So for the three-year three year renewal, um, he charged 2,000 pesos to take care of um, all the paperwork. And then in addition, I paid 9,000 pesos for the three-year residency card. And that's just under $500 for three years. Okay, so five hundred dollars plus another roughly hundred dollars that he took for his paperwork. Processing. Correct. Yes. Okay. Again, for three more years, not bad at all. <laughs> three more years, and not have to worry about immigration. Um, you know, I can live as long as I want. Um, I think it's just having that that freedom and that peace of mind, and not having that stress, which a lot of my other nomad friends are having because. Uh, they're stressing over getting 30 days or not realizing, you know, how many days they have under visa. Oh, for sure. Now, another question that comes to mind is, is it easier now for you to get like long-term rental agreements on apartments because you're a resident? I've heard about that because right now I'm just going month to month with the place I'm currently staying, but I may look for long-term rentals. I know uh, that they do ask foreigners um, if they have residency because I've heard 
that um, they get turned down because they're only on tourist visas and not on residency, um, not on residency at all. Yeah. And I guess the longer you're there, you get, you make these deeper connections and you could have somebody that could become your guarantor also for a longer term rental agreement. If that is a thing in Mexico, it often becomes a thing when you want a longer term lease in some countries. Mm-hmm, exactly. So yeah, it just makes it, it just makes it official that I'm actually living in Mexico. So it's, it's, it's amazing having this yeah, residency. Oh, oh, I can imagine. Now you said it took about 90 minutes and then they gave you your card right away. Was, were you in, was there another interview process or were you just waiting at the, at the administration office? Yeah, I was just waiting. And then I think the only, um, the only interview question was like, um, like how are you planning to support yourself? Which is the same thing. Like, you know, I get paid in the U S that was it, but it wasn't an in-depth interview compared to the first one I had at the Mexican consulate in Miami. Okay. Did they look at your, like your earning over the last year? Did they want to see more statements to prove that you had continued to earn um, above that 2000 or 2,500 amount to get that renewal? Yeah. they. Yeah. They weren't as strict because my consultant told me to bring three months of bank statements just in case um, because they told me that lately in Mexico city, they have been asking for them. Um, but then the, the lady who processed my renewal, she just only looked at my most recent bank statement, but she didn't like analyze it. I think she just checked that you're, that I have enough funds in there, you know, to be financially solvent. So, um, yeah, that was the only time they ever checked for finance, my, as for my financials, but she just glanced at it. And I don't think she went in depth compared to when I was doing it in Miami. Okay. I have a feeling like as long as they see a certain number, they're like, he's fine. He's we're not worried about this one. And then they're yeah. going to renew. <laughs> okay. So just make yeah, sure you've I got think that's all those case. documents just... yeah, in order. And you, you're, you're ready to show it if they need it, but you may not need to. Yeah. You may, may not need to, but they always advise just bring your bank statements anyway, just in case, because it's not part of the, the renewal process. But um, from what I've researched, uh, they do have the right to ask for it um, if needed. So it's better to, to just be prepared for it. Okay, another question, I don't even know if you know this because it doesn't apply to you, but do you know if like Social Security retirement benefits count as income for that 2500 a month if a retiree from America was trying to fall under this uh, visa category? Um, I'm not sure for the temporary, but I think if you're a retiree, you can go straight into permanent residency if you are showing retirement income above a certain amount. Um, but that one, I'm not quite sure. I would suggest, you know, getting in touch with uh, an immigration specialist in Mexico. Um, but I have heard that retirees can get permanent residency. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, another question, and I used to do this for a living, so it's always going to come up in my mind. What is the situation, if you can tell me, about taxation? Now that you're a resident, do you have to pay tax to Mexico in your situation? Yeah, well, just because, uh, uh, again, whatever I'm saying, it's, it's not financial advice, so speak with a tax <laughs> right. professional on it. Yeah. Uh, but from my understanding, because I'm, on a te- I'm a temporary resident without the authorization to work or look for work in Mexico, and because of all my income is being generated in the U.S., and I'm paid, and my pay is into a U.S. business, uh, U.S. checking account, that I don't have to register because there's with the tax office because that wasn't a requirement as a temporary resident in my situation to register with the tax office. Now I'm still am liable for U.S. taxes 
no matter what, uh, because, yeah. you know, the IRS, you know, taxes you on worldwide income, no matter where you're based, unless you, you, you live more than 330 days out of the country. Um, I'm going to speak to a tax professional for that, um, for details. Um, but yeah, um, I think it might be different for permanent residents. I mean, I have another three years, you know, to research this topic. Um, because after three, after three years, I'll be eligible to become a permanent resident here. It might be different because I know as a permanent resident, because you um, have the right to work now in Mexico and earn an income here, you have to register with the tax office. So okay. I believe that might be the case. Okay. Again, it's a gray area. It's a gray area um, regarding the taxes. Um, so I just recommend, you know, obviously consulting a tax professional that's familiar with both the taxes in your home country and in Mexico. Right, right. It's always important to, to not take a podcast word for it, but <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just heard that. I'd heard that if you were earning from outside of Mexico, you did not have to pay Mexican tax if you were like, as you said, not a permanent resident. Um, but but if every case is going to be different. So I think it's it's very important to check out a specialist and ask them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, um, so do you see yourself going for permanent residency and or citizenship in the future? Um, definitely permanent residency. I don't know about citizenship yet. Because uh, so far, my plan is to make, make make Mexico City my main base and then go back to Seattle or, you know, Las Vegas where my mom lives to visit family. Um maybe spend a summer in Seattle because it's really nice up there or, and then maybe spend a couple of months in Europe um, and then come back to Mexico. So that's sort of my plan. I guess now it's, I, I don't know if it's like more of a high, I don't know how to call this is, is if it's a hybrid, even a hybrid or having like one main base and then just doing side trips uh, for a couple of months. So I don't know what you will call this. Maybe it's a hybrid nomad life. <laughs> I don't know. It's not yeah. exactly expat and it's not exactly nomad. <laughs> I, I think hybrid, so. there's this new term I've seen used much more frequently, especially with the pandemic, like hybrid nomad, which I kind of consider myself to be the same now, uh, having like being based for six months in Lisbon and then traveling around as the, the rest of the year. So yeah, welcome to hybrid nomad life. Yeah, yeah, because it's uh, because my main yeah, because my main base is not the country where I have citizenship. Because before it was, you know, the hybrid was Seattle, you know, and uh, six months abroad. But now it's like, oh, okay, I'm spending most of my time abroad, and then having stint like shorter stints in other countries or continents. So yeah, I just I'm, I'm kind of designing this. I'm kind of seeing how this evolves. Well, I love like that how you this lifestyle design. Out. I love that you can design what you want as a as a as a any kind of nomadic lifestyle or a remote worker. It's it's really great. Yeah, definitely, it's pretty exciting. So yeah, I get to carve out the life that I want. Yeah, and I think like from your experience and and what we've seen over the last year, if you're listening to this podcast and you're considering Mexican residency or any residency that's outside of your home country really start thinking about taking action as soon as you can, because we've seen a lot of changes. I saw, I've seen it in Portugal as well. There were the restrictions, like there's, there are more and more restrictions now and higher and higher income levels. So I think overall, I could say it's getting harder to get into some of these really desirable countries, let's say to live in. So I would get started now and and do your research and, and don't be afraid to hire somebody to help you. Would, would you add anything to that, Chris? 
Yeah, I definitely would just be staying on top, like find your target country, look at their residency requirements. Um, a lot of them are going to have obviously the financial requirements and do whatever you can to meet those financial requirements. Um, or if you already meet, a, meet them, just make sure you have all your documents and paperwork all squared off. Yeah, and it's not an, an overnight process. So it, it, it may take some time to get those documents that are required. Also, I would say like, as you were saying, you pay yourself, but start setting up your income so that it's consistent or that you can, let's say, earn a lot in one month. That's enough to cover three months, let's say, of what they're looking for if, if you're not paid every month consistently, because that will really help you when you apply for things like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And each, you know, obviously Mexican consulate in the U.S. is different. Some may have higher requirements or, than others. Um, I know some consulates consider freelance income as part of the income uh, that will satisfy the income requirements and others don't count that. Because um, the way that I structured myself is I set up a, a corporation and then I paid myself a normal salary. But I know a few other people who tried to apply in Miami, Miami and had freelance income, but they didn't count that. Um, And they had to look for another consulate in the U.S. to do it. So, yeah. So just do your research and find out like different consulate requirements because some they'll tell anybody in the U.S. or or they don't have residency requirements. Other consulates are stricter, meaning you have to be a resident to apply at that consulate. Okay, that's a really good tip. And and I think also the Facebook um, groups you were talking about, because also when I was applying in Portugal, I noticed that like things change all the time and the, each consulate could be different, as you mentioned. So you'll get the most up-to-date information on a Facebook group. Exactly. And then if you join pretty much any Facebook um, expat group in Mexico, you're bound to see like most of the posts all about immigration related questions. So you'll find your answer there for sure. Yeah. And they even put documents in those groups that you can download that have like the checklist of things you need. Exactly. Do you have any Facebook groups off the top of your head that you would recommend people to join in Mexico? Um, I, yeah, I think the one main group is expats in Mexico. Um, okay. It's one group. I would say join an expats in Mexico and then join an expat group in your target city. So for example, there's expats in Mexico City, expats in Playa del Carmen, expats in Puerto Vallarta. So yeah, join the overall Mexico group and then find one that's specific to the the target city you have in mind. Okay, that's great advice. Well, if if people would like to follow you or if they would like to learn more about your process, is there somewhere they can go? Um, Yeah, you can reach out to me on Facebook. Um, um, Do you have any show notes? Or I guess you can find me on Instagram. It's K-R-I-S-D-E-L-E-O-N-7-8. So that's my Instagram handle. Yeah, I do have show notes and I will put a link to your Facebook and also yeah. your Instagram yeah. in, the, in the show notes. Is there, and I'll also, yeah. I'll also put a link to the expats in Mexico group. Definitely. I think those would be good resources if you are looking for just residency information or visa information or just anything about lifestyle in Mexico. I think those are great sources. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This has been invaluable for our community here. And I'm sure for anyone who's been thinking about making Mexico more of a permanent home. So yeah, thank you for joining me. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Chris, for sharing your experience with getting Mexican residency. As Chris and I discussed in the interview, it is becoming more difficult to stay for long periods of time in Mexico as a tourist and to do short visa runs to reset your tourist clock. 
So if you do love Mexico and you enjoy living there, you may want to consider applying for your residency, especially in these unstable times in our world, when you never know when you may have to flee your own country at a moment's notice. I feel really terrible saying this, but it really is the truth. Before my interview with Chris, I also had not heard of the term hybrid nomad before. And now I'm wondering, do you think this kind of travel lifestyle is for you? Half the year in one place and half the year in another? Share your comments with us on theschooloftravels.com, where I will also be posting the show notes from today's episode, along with a link where you can find out more about getting residency in Mexico. And also, as I said at the top of this episode, places where you can donate to support the people of Ukraine. There are so many options out there now for designing your travel and work life these days, especially now that many more of us are working online. A hybrid traveling setup could be a good way to start exploring your options of setting up your life in a few different countries, including building long-lasting friendships, opening bank accounts, and potentially getting residency in those countries. That's going to do it for today's episode. And until next time, listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this